our Bibles to 1 John, towards the back of your Bible. And um, I apologize for those of you who showed up uh, to church tonight, having not eaten dinner yet, because uh, my opening illustration for tonight's sermon will be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, but my opening illustration is about In-N-Out Burger. And in honor of opening up... With an illustration about In-N-Out Burger, I had to just—I had to have In-N-Out for dinner tonight, so I had uh, had myself a couple of burgers before uh, earlier tonight. Uh, but nonetheless, you guys, I tend to think—I don't know if you agree—I think most of you agree that In-N-Out Burger happens to just be the best burger chain on God's green earth for a variety of reasons. And most of us have been to In-N-Out probably more times than we can even count, myself included. I don't, I don't even know if I had to put a number on it. I have no idea what that number would be, but it's been a lot. But we have experienced firsthand how amazing it truly is. But unfortunately, I'm sure there's some of our online viewers tonight, maybe even some of you uh, here who have yet to experience In-N-Out. Maybe for those who are online, you live in an area where there's just, you know, your state doesn't have one, your area doesn't have one. But here's the thing about In-N-Out. I can talk your ear off all day, all night about how good it really is, about how good a fresh double-double is. I can tell you all about how In-N-Out only uses the, the freshest, the best ingredients to make their product. I can tell you about the history and the origins of the company, but it is not until you go to In-N-Out, you purchase a double-double, or cheeseburger if you, for whatever reason, like less meat and cheese, but it's not until you go and make that purchase and you sink your teeth into that juicy burger and you let that goodness just overwhelm your taste buds it's not until you do that that you will have experience in and out firsthand and the title of our message tonight is firsthand growing up i i heard all about the grand canyon from uh, my textbooks in reading uh, i knew people who went to the grand canyon fellow friends and I, you know, I believed them that it was, it was grand, it was a Grand Canyon, but it wasn't until a handful of years ago now that I went to the Grand Canyon and I stood at that railing and I overlooked that magnificent canyon. It wasn't until I went there and experienced it firsthand, it wasn't until I did that that I was able to grasp truly how incredible it was. We've likely all been told at some point in our lives regarding some place or something that you've got to go experience it for yourself. And the same concept is true of our relationship with the Lord. He wants you to experience Him firsthand. And we're going to talk about what that means tonight. Tonight we're going to learn of how John tells the readers of his first epistle about the first-hand experience that he had with Christ, with the word of life. We'll also learn how, though you and I, we can't quite have that same physical experience that John got to have with Jesus, we can still have a deep 
an intimate experience with God because of what Christ has done for us and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Because of these things, we can know God. So John, 1 John chapter 1, you should be open there in your Bibles. You can look to the screens. It's just two verses tonight. So you'll just, just stay seated. I'm going to read both of them. But you can look to the screens to follow along or look down in your Bibles. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and to declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would exalt yourself in this place tonight. God, that you would be high and lifted up in our hearts. Jesus, that you would be great in this place. Lord, that we would know your Holy Spirit, Lord, and know how he wants to work in our lives. God, I pray tonight that we would truly have a jaw-dropping sense of wonder for the gospel. And God, we ask that you would magnify your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes tonight, we have one main point and a handful of sub-points for this main point. But the main point tonight is the gravity of knowing God firsthand. The gravity of knowing God firsthand. It is a big thing to say that we are able to know God, but it is clearly taught in the Scriptures. And we see in verses 1 and 2 how John speaks of knowing God. And our first sub-point tonight is knowing God, the eternal one. John writes in verse 1, he said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. What is the that that John is referring to here? An even better question to ask is, who is the that? And we know that it is none other than Jesus that John is referring to here. The Amplified Version of the Bible, a helpful Bible study tool to use from time to time, translates this first verse of 1 John 1 as this. I am writing about what existed from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The one who existed even before the beginning of the world, Christ. Revelation 1 verse 8 in the revelation of Jesus Christ to John in the vision that God gives John of Jesus, Jesus says this of himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It was specifically Jesus who said that. Later on in chapter 1 of Revelation, 
It says, John writes, he says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And that title, that name, the first and the last, is a title of God's, it it speaks of his eternal nature. We see it referenced in Isaiah 44, 6. We read there, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then in John 17, verses 4 through 5, Jesus is praying to the Father in the upper room, in the midst of his disciples. He's praying to his Father in heaven, and he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work for which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. And then check this out. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. It's amazing. Jesus is eternal. He has always been. John 1 Verses 1 through 2, I know this is a ton of scripture, but it's important. John 1, verses 1 and 2, the Gospel of John, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we know that the Word that John is referring to there is Christ Jesus. Bible commentator John Phillips writes this. He says, here in his epistle, when John refers to a beginning, he wants us to envision one who had an eternal pre-existence, but who at a specific moment in time entered into human life on planet Earth. When any other baby is born, it marks the beginning of a new life. When Jesus was born, it signified something quite different. It marked the beginning, excuse me, it marked the coming into this world of a person who had existed from all eternity. The Lord Jesus did not have a beginning, he was. Our second sub point tonight, under the gravity of knowing God firsthand, is knowing God the incarnate Christ. John says in verse 2, He says, the life was manifested. That word manifested is is such a powerful word. Is the revealing. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You see, Jesus being eternal, the Bible teaches that he put on flesh And he stepped into time. He stepped into his creation for the purpose of redeeming those whom he loved. John 1, verse 14, later on in the first chapter of John, we just looked at the first two verses a moment ago. Later on in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
the eternal God of all glory, of all creation, he became seeable, he became hearable, he became even touchable in the person of Christ. God became knowable in such a personal way. And John is saying here to his readers, we heard him with our own two ears. We saw him with our own two eyes and gazed upon the glory of God in Christ. We touched him with our own two hands. We really experience the one who we preach about. We really experience the one who we claim to believe in. And we may ask ourselves, why is, why is John feeling the need to say these things? The answer, I believe, to this question is twofold. One being is John is addressing the prevalent false teachings at this time of docetism and Gnosticism that were, they were creeping their way into the church. And what were, what were they teaching? They were going around and teaching that Jesus was some sort of phantom spirit, that he did not have a physical body and come in bodily form. And this was no doubt to you and I a wacky teaching, but a lot of people at this time were being led astray by it. And so John is like, no, no, no. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him and I laid my very head on his bosom the night that he was betrayed. John is setting the record straight to these people. In writing to the church of Colossae, Paul, he crushes these false teachings when he says in just a few short words, Colossians 2.9, Paul writes, For in him, that is Jesus, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That word bodily simply means what it sounds like, in bodily form. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 19. He is the image of the invisible God. The He is Jesus. The firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether on, excuse me things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross so in one way john is silencing these false teachings and just putting it putting an end to it but in another way he is sharing of the deep an intimate experience that he had with Jesus. We've all probably thought at some point in our lives, oh, how amazing it would have been if I could have just been alive when Jesus walked on the earth. And while the, the sentiment of that is, is sweet, Jesus actually said, 
about those who would believe in him without physically having seen it. He said, those ones are blessed. He tells this to Thomas in John 20, 29. He says, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. And you know, Thomas, I, he, he tends to get a bad rap in the Bible. And I feel bad for the guy. He's only remembered for his doubts. He's not remembered for anything else he did. But what I love about the way Jesus dealt with Thomas's doubts and maybe this is for someone here tonight, is Jesus met his doubts. You know, God says, come let us reason together. And Jesus met Thomas in his doubts and proved to Thomas that he was indeed the risen Christ. Jesus also made it clear to the disciples in the upper room, just before his death on the cross, that it was to their advantage that he go away. John 16, 7, Jesus says to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The helper is the comforter, the parakletos. This is none other than than the Holy Spirit of God. And this leads us perfectly into our third sub-point about the gravity of knowing God firsthand. And it's all about the Holy Spirit. It's knowing God firsthand by the Holy Spirit. By the work of the Holy Spirit. By what the Holy Spirit does. You see, because the Holy Spirit has come, because Jesus kept His Word and sent the Holy Spirit, because He is in us, you and I, though we're not physically with Jesus, like John got to be, we can still experience unfathomable intimacy with God because of the Holy Spirit. Author and Bible teacher James Montgomery Boyce, he writes these powerful words in his commentary of 1 John. This is amazing. says it perfectly. No one today can repeat the objective experiences of Christ possessed by the apostles. None of us can go back in time and walk with Jesus physically. Nevertheless, we can and must repeat their subjective experience as on the basis of objective revelation, the Holy Spirit makes Christ alive and real both to our minds and our hearts. You see, though we do not see Him with our physical eyeballs, we see Him through the eyes of faith. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 12. Paul writes to the church of Corinth, he says, But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor, has it entered, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. You mean that same Spirit that's in us? Yes. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been given freely to us by God. You see, because of the Holy Spirit, Paul says here that we can know the deep things of God. And if tonight you feel like your relationship with God is just lacking, lacking depth, and you want to go deeper, I challenge you to go and study the work of the Holy Spirit and grow in your relationship with the third person of the Trinity specifically. Our fourth sub-point about the gravity of knowing God tonight is knowing God firsthand through the new covenant. You see, because of the new covenant ushered in by Christ, we can know God. The Old Testament and the New Testament each have powerful words for our boring English word, know. The Old Testament and New Testament have some pretty strong words. Those words are yada in Hebrew and gnosko in Greek. And they both speak of a deep knowledge that is gained by experience and relationship. Not just a head knowledge, but also a heart knowledge. And I want to briefly look at the story of redemption woven throughout the pages of the Bible as we seek to understand how through the new covenant we can know God intimately. Go back with me in your minds to creation. When God first creates the earth, the heavens and the earth, and He creates mankind. He creates Adam and Eve. And for a time, Adam and Eve, they enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. They knew God. But we know that they eventually sinned. We know that the fall happened, that Adam and Eve, they sin against God. And their fellowship with God is broken. Their sin had then separated them from a holy God. And so God, He removes them and banishes them from the Garden of Eden, and they were no longer able to know God in the same way that they did before they sinned. We might think it's harsh, and why did God have to completely banish them from this amazing garden? Genesis 3, 22 through 24 answers that question for us. Says, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why the tree of life specifically? Why was God so concerned about them not partaking of the tree of life any longer? It's incredibly significant. God did not want them to partake of it anymore because if they were, they would continue to live in a perpetual state of separation from God. God had a plan. God not allowing them to partake of the tree of life was actually the most merciful thing he could have done because he had a plan of redemption. The old covenant or the law, let's talk about that for a moment before we get into the new. 
Israel, after being led out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt, it's in the wilderness of Sinai that God gives Moses what we know as the Old Covenant or the Law. God tells them exactly how He wanted them to live. He told them how blessed they would be if they kept His covenant. But He also told them how miserable they would be if they broke it. And a major component of the Old Covenant, a major component of the law was the sacrificial system. You ought to go read Leviticus. It's actually a beautiful book if you can read it, read it through the lens of Christ. But God gave them a sacrificial system for when they would sin. And under the Old Covenant, it's as though God said to them, you've sinned and you've fallen short of my glory Here is how you're going to make temporary atonement for your sins. And that was through the earthly sacrifices that we read about in the Old Testament. It's as though God said to them, here's what you're going to do about it. But in the new covenant, now let's talk about the new covenant. God sends his only begotten son into the world. And it is through Christ that the new covenant is then ushered in. And under the new covenant, It's as though God has said, you've sinned and fallen short of my glory, just like in the old covenant. But he says, here is how I'm going to make permanent atonement for your sin. It's as though God says, here's what I'm going to do about it. And that was by sending Christ. The new covenant was prophesied of all throughout the Old Testament, but most clearly in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 say, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, get this, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, how is it that through the new covenant we can know God? God says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I don't know about you, but I am thankful to be under the new covenant that is according to Christ Jesus. See, the Bible teaches that Christ came into this world to be our propitiation. It's a big Bible word. If you ever want to sound smart in a Bible discussion, just, hey, what do you guys think about the propitiation? And just... You'll sound really smart, but it's not that complicated of a Bible word. It's not that complicated of a topic. First John 2, 2 says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And then first John 4, 10, later on in first John, John says again, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
The propitiation, what it means is it is the appeasement of God's holy wrath on sin. The fulfillment of God's wrath. God's wrath was fulfilled when Christ died on the cross. He bore God's wrath in that moment. I never got to meet my grandfather, but his name was uh, Grandpa Luther. And uh, on his deathbed, he was still somewhat coherent. But I love this story that my dad told me not all that long ago. When the pastor came to visit him in his final days, just like how many of the pastors here at this church will go to hospitals to visit those in their final days, pastor comes to him and one of, one of the chief objectives when we go get to go to hospitals for, to people who are dying is we want to make sure they know, they know Christ. We want to make sure that he is their Lord and he is their Savior and that they know where they're going soon. And so that pastor wanted to make sure and asked him, Luther, you're going to die soon. Do you believe that you're going to go to heaven? He said, yes, I do. And naturally the pastor says, Why? And he says, I love this answer, so sweet, so simple. He said, because that man died for me. And the man he was referring to was the man Christ Jesus, the God man. Because that man died for me. Not any works of my own because of what Christ Jesus did for my sin. He got it right. And he's in heaven. I know that. Christ came into this world to be our mediator, the Bible teaches. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And one of the most famous verses of the Bible that we quote all the time, John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes we stop quoting it right there. But there's a very important second part of this. That no one comes to the Father except, what is the word? Through me. Through Christ. Because He is the mediator. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19 says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This word mediator that we just mentioned a moment ago, what it means is it is one who intervenes between two for the purpose of restoring relationship. And that is what Christ did for us. He restored our relationship with God by taking down the middle wall of separation, which was our sin. Because Christ has come to be our propitiation, because He has come to be our mediator, all who are in Christ and are forgiven of their sin can know God firsthand. You see, being able to know God firsthand is at the very core of our salvation, John 17, 3, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Jesus, again, he is praying to the Father in the presence of the disciples. He wanted the disciples to hear this prayer. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, eternal life, according to the 17th chapter of John here and his first epistle, is not only something for our future that awaits us, it's something for our now. We can know God now because of what Christ has done. Jesus does not define eternal life as something that is distant and something that we must wait for until we die. It's a profound thought. He defines it as something that we can experience now as we seek to know God and as we seek to know the Son of God. The Interpreter's Bible Commentary puts it like this. A distinctive aspect of John's conception of eternal life is that it is a present possession and experience. This conception corrects a common perversion of the gospel. Expositors often interpret eternal life as future immortality and withhold the richest gift Christianity offers to men. Life with God now. It defines the true measure of life as qualitative rather than quantitative. You see, because of what Christ has done, our sin no longer separates us from God in the positional sense. In the practical sense, when we sin, we must confess it to the Lord. But He will forgive and He will cleanse. But in the positional sense, we are no longer separated from God because of our sin. Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 18, Paul writes, he says, For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. For through Him... Through Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that at the very moment that Jesus breathed his last, does anyone know what happened? The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. This was not simply a regular old curtain that you and I probably have in our homes. This, this, this veil was a thick piece of fabric. And that veil was miraculously torn when Jesus breathed his last. And we cannot afford to miss the significance of this. The veil of the temple served as a means of separation. The veil separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. It was at the holy of holies where God's presence dwelt, the Shekinah glory. The priest would go into the Holy of Holies beyond the veil on the Day of Atonement to intercede on behalf of the sins of the nation of Israel. But when Christ died and that veil was torn, it signified that because of what He did in forgiving us of our sins, when He said to Telestai, it is finished, the work is done, forgiveness of sin was accomplished through His death. Now every man who goes through Christ has direct access to God. Hebrews 10, 
verses 19 through 22, says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, now Christ is the veil through which we enter into the holiest. Because of his blood, we learn here that we can enter into God's presence with boldness. A.W. Tozer, my favorite author, he writes regarding the veil being torn, he says, this rending of the veil opened the way for every worshiper in the world to come by the new and living way straight in to the divine presence. See, through his sacrifice, through the new covenant, Jesus paved a way for our fellowship with God to be restored. And now that we've considered the gravity of knowing God in four ways, one being knowing God the eternal one, Two, being knowing God, the incarnate Christ. Three, being knowing God by the Holy Spirit and what we just looked, looked at a moment ago, knowing God through the new covenant. I would like us all to consider to ourselves a few questions tonight. And this is simply between you and God, but I want to present them to you. The first is, do I possess a genuine first-hand experience with God? Dead religion will never produce this. Amen. Only abiding in Christ can. Amen. What do I mean by abiding in Christ? John 15, verses 1 through 8, the words of Jesus. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. I try to remind myself that every day. Without Jesus, I can't do anything. Can't do anything right. <laughs> but with Jesus, I can do all things. Verse 6, he goes on. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. To abide in Christ is to truly have a relationship with Him. It is to be connected with Him. That is what that word abide means. It simply means to be connected to Jesus. You see, and, and too many people, they limit their experience with God to a second-hand way. They don't open up the Bible for themselves. Tate, that's why I come on Sundays. That's why I come on Wednesdays. 
So Pastor Jack can teach me the Bible. And while we know, biblically speaking, that is an amazing thing. And you should listen to Bible teaching. You need to go dive into the Word for yourself. Many do not go into the secret place of prayer that Jesus talks about. Where God will reward them openly, He says. What's the point in, in waiting on the Lord in prayer for 30 minutes, an hour, however long? What's the point in that? Many people do not seek to be used by God. Take, that's what, that's for people who work at churches and stuff. They're the ones that are used by God. No. God wants you to know Him in a first-hand way. What we must understand about this first-hand knowing and experiencing of God is that His Word is what leads us into it. And this is how we make sure we accurately know God. Because too many people go chasing after goosebumps and feelings because they think that is what it means to experience God and they leave the Bible at the door. And that is the worst thing you can do. I would even argue that you would encounter other spirits that are not God if you're doing that. You'll have an encounter, but it won't be with God. You see, to encounter God, you go through His Word. His Word is your guide. His Word connects you with Him. It is the Word of God that leads us to experience the author of the Word of God. The Lord, our God. Another question to consider tonight is do I know about God or do I know God? And this is, you know, some, some people make it to the end of their lives having accumulated very much head knowledge about God and about His Scriptures. And good on them. But you have to also have a heart experience with God. Maybe you've heard of the 18-inch gap before. The gap between the mind and the heart is about 18 inches, give or take. Maybe if you're a smaller person, it's not quite 18 inches. But nonetheless, that gap must be closed. You can build up the head knowledge, and you should, but it should affect your heart. It should connect you with God. It should connect you with Christ. Cause you to abide in Him. You were created to be connected to God in such a real, deep, and intimate way. A third question to consider is, is knowing God a priority to me? Listen to what Paul the Apostle has to say about how much it was a priority to him. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 14, he writes, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know him. Gnosko. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Paul said, I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul said, I count it all loss. Every achievement, every even failure, everything in between those. I count it all loss to know him. The upward call that he references there is an intimate relationship with our Lord. A final question to consider tonight is, does my life prove to others that I know God? 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6, says, Now by this we know that we know Him. How do we know that we know Him? If we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar. A lot of people claim to know God. A lot less keep His commandments. And the truth is not in that one who does that. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Keeping his commandments proves that we truly know him. 1 John 4, later on in 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Loving one another proves that we know God. Notice how it doesn't say, love is God. And that's an important distinction to make. God is love. We've, you know, culture has crafted their own definition of love and equated it to that of, you must accept my lifestyle, you must accept this about me. God is love, love is not God. Acts 4.13, you know, Peter and John had a pretty, out of all the disciples, they had a very close experience with God. They had a very close experience with Jesus, but they weren't educated guys. They, they did not go to this school of ministry. They simply walked with Jesus. And I love what this says. Those who were present and seeing what Peter and John were doing for the gospel, what God was doing through them, they, see, they saw them and it says they perceived that these men were uneducated and untrained untra- men. 
Apparently, it was pretty evident that they were not educated and, and not trained. But they marveled. Why did they marvel? Because of their boldness. And it says that even though they weren't educated, even though they weren't trained, they had been with Jesus. Boldness comes from being with Jesus. Daniel 11.32 in the New American Standard Bible puts it like this, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Knowing God produces strength and it produces action. And so as we close tonight, some final verses to meditate on. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. I love this. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight. Knowing God is something that you and I are to take great pride in. That we're to glory in. That we're to be proud of. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 12. Just after the... The so often quoted verses about what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It goes on. Just after those verses, Paul says this. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. See, the reality is, is if we want to go deeper in knowing God, if we want to go deeper in our relationship with Him, it's time to put away childish things. Things of the flesh, things that just quite frankly don't matter. We put them away to know God more deeply. And Paul, he says, for now, he knows in part. See, you and I, we know God partially. We continue to press into that deep knowledge of him. But in heaven, we will know him fully. And, you know, I suppose that you can wait until heaven to, to grow in your knowing of him. I suppose you could do that. But I would tell you that you are robbing yourself of an abundant life in Jesus, full of peace, full of joy, full of strength, full of everything that your heart truly wants. As you more deeply know Him, you will experience those things. Psalm 34, 8 says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good doesn't say have me taste it for you or have me see it for you. You taste and see that the Lord is good. In his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer, he writes this. To have found God 
And still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionists, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. It's amazing. The soul's paradox of love, that we have found Jesus, that He has found us, that we have come to Christ and experienced His salvation, and yet to not be satisfied, to want to experience Him more deeply through His Word and through His Holy Spirit is the paradox of love. The children of the burning heart. I love that. And how I love so dearly what Charles Spurgeon writes here. When he preached to his congregation, he said, Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go. Plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is the heartbeat of the believer to devote one's life to count all things lost, to know God and pursue the deep and intimate relationship He wants us to have with Him. Psalm 42.1, our last verse tonight. David writes, or the psalmist actually, says, As the deer pants for the water books, so pants my soul for you, O God. I don't know about you guys, but I, I, my prayer is that my soul would constantly just be panting after God. The image here is a deer that is, that is exhausted, that is in need of water, and is panting for the water books, brooks. And I want my soul to be like that, the psalmist says, constantly panting for my God. Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, our Father, the one who calls us his children because of Christ, Lord, truly, we want to leave all things behind, count them all as rubbish so that we may know you. God, take us deeper. Lord, draw us closer to your heart. May it be said of us, like you said of David, he is a man that is after my heart. Oh Lord, how we just want to be close to you. And God, I do pray for anyone in here tonight who... It's just not quite feeling that way. Lord, I pray that they would plunge themselves into your word. And that through your word, through what Christ has done, 
through the work of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that they would know you firsthand, that they would gnosko you, that they would have that deep, personal, experiential knowledge of you, Jesus. And Lord, while we can't quite say what John got to say about how we physically saw him, how we physically heard him, how we physically touched him, Lord, I pray that we would be able to tell this world, oh, I know Jesus, all right. I know him well. And God, that knowing you would be our greatest boast, would be our greatest glory, that we wouldn't take glory in anything else other than the fact that we know our Creator. And Lord, we recognize that there is a world of people who are seeking. They are seeking all these things trying to fill the desire that you've put in their heart to know you, but they're not looking for you. God, use us to reach them. There are people in our lives, people in my life that these here don't know. There are people in the person to our right that that they don't know, Lord, that, that we don't know, excuse me, but... Lord, you've placed so many people in our circle, so many people in our life that don't know you, God, and we just want to be faithful. We want to tell them about this Jesus that we know and of the love that you have for them. Use us, Lord. Take us deeper, God. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.